Welcome to the Digital Edge with Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway. Your hosts, both legal technologists, authors, and lecturers, invite industry professionals to discuss a new topic related to lawyers and technology. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 95th edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm Jim Calloway, director of the Oklahoma Bar Association's Management Assistance Program. Today, our topic is what's hot in cybersecurity for law firms. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. CloudMask offers cost-effective and efficient data encryption for law firms, whether large or small, in Google Apps, Office 365, and other cloud solutions. Sign up now for your 60-day free account at cloudmask.com. We also thank ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit ServeNow.com to learn more. We are happy to welcome as our guest John Simic, one of the country's leading cybersecurity experts for law firms. John is the vice president of Sensei Enterprises in Fairfax, Virginia, which offers IT, information security, and digital forensic services for law firms and other businesses. John is a co-author of the book, Encryption Made Simple for Lawyers, published by the American Bar Association in 2015, and a co-author of the second edition of Lockdown, Practical Information Security for Lawyers, which will be published in March of 2016. He has more certifications than we can list and testifies as an expert witness all around the country. He also happens to be Sharon's husband and business partner and one of my close friends for many years. Thank you for being a guest on our podcast today, John. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure to, to be on the, the podcast with, with you and Sharon. John, security seems to be on the minds of all lawyers and their clients today. We've seen fairly recently 27 AMLA 100 firms get the ISO 27001 certification as we record the, go to record this podcast. Can you explain briefly what that certification is and what's the process and the cost to get it? The ISO 27001, uh, it's an international standard. It's published by the International Standards Organization, hence the ISO, ISO. It describes how you manage information security within a, within a company or in, in, in our context here with, within law firms. The latest revision of the standard was published in 2013. Essentially, it's guidelines and a standard to tell law firms how they can protect the information, the confidentiality, the integrity, the availability of the information that, that the law firm holds. Uh, an independent certification body does this. Uh, but I think one of the biggest myths of, of folks when they're talking about 27001 is, and they hear the word standard, they think that you're going to get some sort of a, uh, a checklist or something that tells you this is exactly what you need to, to put in place. Uh, those types of things. And, and it's not. It really, at its heart, talks about what is required in order to, as I said earlier, protect the, the confidentiality, integrity, and, and availability of information. Such things as, you know, backup as an example. It doesn't tell you how often you should back up data. If they said, well, it's every 24 hours, so 24 hours may not be good enough for some, some firms. 
Your data may be so volatile. It really, you have to assess what the risk is and what the, the type of information that you're holding. If the data is very volatile, changes a lot, 24 hours may put you at too much risk. And you maybe need to do it every hour, every 15 minutes or something like that. If you're a, a firm where your, your data is fairly static and, and isn't real dynamic, maybe 24 hours is too often. Maybe once a week is fine. Uh, so it's really a, a grouping of, of guidelines and standards to help you. And it's going to be different for each individual firm. So as, as to if you're a smaller firm, uh, you may be able to accomplish this, uh, this certification process in, in as little as four to six months. Mid-sized firms, probably around 10 months or so. And, and larger firms, uh, some of the big firms that you were just talking about, Sharon, uh, it could take 12 months or longer, you know, a couple of years before you run through all of these different things and that the, the independent certification body has verified that you're compliant with these various ISO standards. What about the cost, John? Do you know? No, it, not really. It's, it can be several thousands, uh, you know, for a small effort, up to tens of thousands. Uh, it really depends. You know, as I mentioned, it's the, the timing. Uh, if you can accomplish it in a short period of time, then obviously it's going to be less cost. Well, John, solo practitioners and smaller law firms are not going to get that certification. Can they self-certify that they are compliant with the NIST small business standards? And you can, can you explain to our listeners what those are? Sure. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say that all small firms are not going to, to even attempt the 27001 uh, certification. As I said, some, some may. They may elect to go down that road, but... You're right. It, it sounds pretty costly to me for most small firms. But but the, there's an alternative, and that's the NIST Small Business Guide, as you talked about, where uh, NIST, the uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology, provides guidelines uh, for smaller businesses as to what they should uh, or can can do. They've basically grouped those guidelines, uh, and, and this, the business guide is freely available on, on the Internet, by the way. It's NIS. TR 7621 Revision 1, which was dated December of 2014. But there are really three sections that they talk about. There's the absolutely necessary cybersecurity actions that you should do. And then there's a highly recommended one. And then there's more advanced ones. And as an example, the absolutely necessary ones are things like manage the risk, protect the information, protect your internet connection. That seems pretty obvious to me. <laughs> Install and activate software firewalls, patch your operating systems. So those are the types of things that are included in the, in the absolutely necessary. Some of the recommended ones are, you know, be careful with email attachments and, and uh, email requesting sensitive information. Be careful with web links. Uh, so these are fairly simple things that small firms can certainly easily do. Uh, be careful when surfing the web, things like that. For law firms, I think we're, the, the recommendation primarily is that when you're looking at that NIST small business guide, law firms should be doing everything within the absolutely necessary grouping, and there's approximately 11 of those. And then they should be doing everything in the highly recommended as well, and there's 12 of those. Um, and in addition to that, because law firms are, are a little bit different than a lot of other businesses uh, in that they've got different you know, ethical requirements and different requirements in order to protect the confidentiality of the, of the client information that, that are, is being entrusted to them, they should probably also be uh, dealing with and, and handling a contingency and disaster recovery operation, which is part of the more advanced cybersecurity practices uh, as, as a section in that, uh, the NIST Small Business Guide. John, can you name any other 
helpful resources for small firms that, that may assist them in assuring clients that security is uppermost on their mind? Sure, there's a lot of them. Um, so there's some of my favorite ones that uh, that I would steer people towards. One of them is, is CERT, C-E-R-T, the Coordination Center at Carnegie Mellon University. They deal and they publish a lot of the vulnerabilities and security things as, as they come about. So uh, they have a listserv that you can sign up for, for notifications on there. Um, I like a, another website called Dark Reading as well, and that's www.darkreading.com. That's more for the technical side. It's it's the security piece of uh, of Information Week. Uh, Krebs on Security, Brian Krebs is another blog that he publishes. He's not as frequent as uh, as some of the other sources that are that are available out there. I, I still subscribe to him, but the Dark Reading and, and CERT come out with more. SANS Institute, you can't deal with any security reference unless you're referencing SANS. SANS is just a leading organization, that's SANS.org, and they've got all kinds of you know, security notifications, research, training. They also certify as well, so um, you can get some great, some great information from those guys. SC Magazine is another good source. Uh, very timely. Schneier on security. That's Bruce Schneier. Bruce calls him like it is. I, I know you uh, follow Bruce as well, Sharon. He's uh, he, he's colorful. Yeah, he's very he's very colorful, and and sometimes he talks like a marine. But anyway, he it's it's all good stuff, and he really is spot on. But those those are some of the ones, at least that that, that I subscribe to, and then certainly you know is the other reference that as you talked about earlier, Jim, is the the lockdown book that we just uh, finished updating. Which, which hopefully will be published in March. <laughs> well, well, John, when I uh, in the past have mentioned uh, Internet security or cybersecurity to groups of lawyers, it was sometimes as if I said, now's the time for everybody to take out your phone and check your email. Uh, so what's driving the recent push <laughs> to really focus on cybersecurity issues? <laughs> um, it's, it's really the clients. That's the, the ones that are primarily that and all the data breaches that we're hearing about. Um, darn near weekly. And we've, we have heard of data breaches at, at law firms. Uh, they're certainly not as publicized as the ones like, you know, OPM or Target or any, any of those major ones. Uh, but the, the clients themselves are now coming to the law firms and they want to know what are the law firms doing in order to protect the data that the client is entrusting to them. So they're really the, the, the ones that are, that, are, that are driving this train. I know we've seen a lot of firms begin their cybersecurity efforts by developing an incident response plan, which is, of course, critical, but many people don't even know what it is. So can you explain what such a, a plan consists of and what elements it should contain? Yeah, incident response plan basically is the – think of it almost like a, like your fire drill that you did when you were in kids in school – is if there's a fire and then this is everyone's quietly going to line and walk outside and you already knew where you were going to, to stay in the parking lot or in the, you know, whatever the baseball diamond or whatever it was. So you, you put this plan together in case something happened, a fire in, in the case of the fire drills. Well, the incident response plan is a similar exercise where you identify upfront what your plan is going to be should you have certain events, security events. What happens if um, I get a virus attack? What happens if there's a denial of service attack on my network? Uh, what happens, uh, what do I do if an employee uh, loses a flash drive that's unencrypted and has client information on it? Those are the, the kind of the, the elements of the incident response. You take the incidents and then how are you going to respond to it? There's a lot of elements that can uh, that comprise the incident response. 
Uh, some of you identify certainly the internal personnel that are that are responsible for each function, uh, and you should do that by uh, not by the person's name, but by the title that they hold. Such things as like the the IT folks or the information security people, maybe human resources, uh, you know, marketing or compliance, or some of those those groups need to be involved in your incident response. Um, the contact information of an experienced data breach attorney, because after all, what we're talking about is if if you're if your network gets compromised or you lose that flash drive or whatever, um, that's really considered a data breach. So you've lost information that someone else, unauthorized personnel, has access to. There are lawyers that they specialize in that. Well, I guess we can't use the word specialize, but they concentrate in, in that and they, uh, they are very, very familiar with data breach laws and the various state laws and uh, various federal regulations that may, may come to bear. So. You need to identify at least somebody that you're going to, to contact for that. Uh, the location in, of your insurance policy. You may or may not have coverage. Uh, hopefully you do. So uh, you need to contact your insurance company, whatever. Uh, law enforcement as well, contacts. Typically, it's going to be your local FBI office. At least identify who within law enforcement you're going to contact. The contact information for any digital forensics consultant that you're going to use. Those are going to be the guys that go and analyze the breach or the incident and then can tell you things about it, uh, potentially, you know, where to come from, how was it compromised, et cetera. Within also within the IRP, containment and recovery from the breach. So if you're compromised, how do you contain it and how do you recover from it? Uh, and in the case of ransomware, as an example, where's your backup data? How do you go get back to that? So you're recovering from that, that particular incident. You try to determine at least the data that's been compromised that you can absolutely assure that it's been compromised or potentially compromised. Identify and preserve system logs. And that's that's the biggest thing I think that, that we see is that a lot of logging that sh that is possible is not enabled. So when the digital forensics guys, and I, when we come in to investigate, there isn't a heck of a lot of information to analyze because they haven't been capturing it. So that's something that we, we want to make sure we're always doing. If you have an intrusion detection or, or data loss prevention software, logs from those systems as well. Uh, any bank information. Financial information, banking credentials may have been compromised, so you may have to notify your bank that's there. A lot of times you may, you know, it's optional, but you may want to have contact information for uh, public relations firms. Because sometimes, depending on the severity of the, of the breach and the compromise, uh, it may be a public relations nightmare for your firm. Um, identify how you're going to handle any contact with the clients and third parties. So some sometimes you may not want to tell them everything. Uh, on some, but you want to have a measured response. You want to know what that's going to be right up front. Uh, how are you going to inform and handle your employees, your own internal employees? A lot of times the employees don't even know that a data breach has occurred and, and they may have been the cause of it. So they're continuing to do the same act. If you have a data breach notification law, um, it should also be part of that plan. Now that's where that data breach lawyer is going to help you. But most states have that. I think Sharon, I think you know the exact numbers. 47, is that where 40, we're at? 47 right currently, yeah. Yeah. Um, so at least have a copy of that, uh, of the most current uh, data breach notification, so you know what your legal requirements are. Um, any impacted I, data that may be covered by other legal obligations like HIPAA, those types of things. If it, is it uh, financial information or is it medical information that's, that's handled under other uh, regulations? And then train on that plan. So once you've identified this IRP, make sure that everybody understands what their role is as part of that, that, that IRP. And then and test it um, with various hypotheticals. 
because the big problem there is that, and this is a living document, because our, our, the vulnerabilities and the, um, the access points or, or the, 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 the threat landscape, uh, it changes very, very quickly as technology changes. So, uh, you know, there, there wasn't a Facebook, you know, 15, 20 years ago, as an example, or so the, the social media craze. Uh, we didn't have smartphones connecting up to our, our, our networks you know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago. It wasn't that pre- prevalent. So those, as those things come about, then that increases your threat landscape. You're going to need to modify this IRP so that you adjust for what those various technologies are. John, I can hear the lawyers across America listening to that catalog of things they need to do, and their question is going to be, is there anywhere a law firm can get a template for an incident response plan? Yeah, that's. <laughs> there's got to be a form for that, right, Jim? That's right. <laughs> um, no, there isn't, unfortunately. And, and the primary reason is because the technology varies about the firm. The workflow varies for, for each firm. Um, their, what their exposure points are, what the risk of the data. Uh, different firms hold different types of data. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a, a, a patent attorney, you have very, very highly valuable information, you know, for, for about your, from your clients. Uh, and you may take extra steps and do different things as part of your IRP than, uh, than somebody that does, I don't know, some transactional thing. Um, so it, there really isn't a template that is the short answer. Because uh, you need to walk through and, and, and you can get some help. I mean, there, there are, you can find IRPs on the internet. They don't necessarily, um, they may not necessarily apply. Let's pause for a commercial break and then we'll be right back. In recent years, the legal sector has come under increasing pressure to improve efficiency and client services. CloudMask enables law firms and solo attorneys to leverage free and low-cost software as a service, such as Google Apps and Office 365, to improve efficiency and client service while reducing costs, strengthening compliance with data privacy laws, and ensuring that legal ethical duties are met. CloudMask encryption is even certified by 26 governments around the world. Sign up now for your 60-day free account at CloudMask.com. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the country. Connect your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit servenow.com. Welcome back to the Digital Edge on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our subject is what's hot in cybersecurity for law firms. And our guest is John Simic, one of the country's leading cybersecurity experts for law firms. I may be a little prejudiced in saying that. And the vice president of Sensei Enterprises. John, we've both noted that encryption has been big, very big in 2015, especially email encryption. Can you talk a little bit about how easy email encryption has become? Sure. In the um, 
call it, quote, older days of, of technology. Encrypting email is very, very cumbersome. You had to do this key exchange of public and private keys. And before I could even send you a message, I had to know who I was going to communicate with. And I had to make sure that you had access to um, the uh, uh, public key, my public key, and then I would use my private key. So it, it was so cumbersome that most folks didn't even do it. I, I didn't even do it. It was just such a pain in the butt. But today, email encryption is extremely easy, very cost-effective, and, and affordable. There are service providers that are that are out there that act, that provide a mechanism whereby you can send encrypted messages without doing the key exchange up front. As an example, I mean, we happen to use uh, Zixcorp in, in our company here, but they're not the only ones. There are a lot of, of companies that that do this type of thing, where. All you need to do is click a little button. There's an add-on to Outlook as an example, and it says encrypt and send. Or you can have certain rules in there that uh, every single message is encrypted or only messages that might contain uh, social security numbers because you already know the social security number format, things like that. But but extremely easy uh, these days to to have it. And I think that every every lawyer, at least they don't have to necessarily use it all the time, but it should be available for them to use if, if when appropriate. John, would you uh, talk a little bit about the uh, 2015 Texas ethics opinion about encryption? And do you see other jurisdictions moving in the same direction? Well, Jim, as you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but Texas came out uh, with opinion 648. And they were the first state to identify in an ethics opinion when the kinds of situations where encryption should be used or at least considered. Uh, so they were very, very specific uh, in their things. They listed six, uh, essentially six areas. Uh, you should use encryption when, as an example, communicating highly sensitive or confidential information via email, sending email to or from an account where the sender or the recipient, where they share that uh, account with other people. Well, that's pretty obvious to me, right? You want to make sure it's protected so the other people don't see it. Uh, sending an email to a client when it's possible that a third person uh, such as a spouse in a divorce case, if they also know the password to access it, that email. Uh, sending email from public computers or borrowed computers. Sending email if a lawyer knows the email recipient is accessing the mail, email on devices that are potentially accessible to third persons. Sending an email if the lawyer is concerned that the NSA or other law enforcement agencies may read. So they've, they've identified, at least specifically, some areas where uh, encryption would be appropriate to use that. I don't know that other states are, are going to use such language specifically. Uh, I know they talk about, generally they talk about just the protection of it and they don't specify a technology. Uh, my concern about you know using the word encryption is that that's what we know today and that's what protects data. But what about 10 years from now? What about five years from now? Is there going to be something different that is going to be better than what we know and you're going to have to change the rules because you specified a technology? I, I agree with that, but on the other hand, sometimes you can't be entirely technology agnostic. And I know certainly Bruce Schneier, who you referred to before, um, you know, he he calls encryption a no-brainer. And uh, although I don't think it it has to be used all the time, uh, when you s transmit confidential data, I believe it should be, uh, and that's what Texas was headed toward. Use it where appropriate. But let let let's move on to ransomware, which is driving law firms crazy. I know we saw four Northern Virginia law firms 
hit within two weeks. How, how can the firms protect themselves? Um, and also, I know from our dinnertime conversations that there has been a new and unsettling development in ransomware variants. Can you talk to us about that too, John? Sure. The best way to protect yourself from ransomware is to make sure that you have a backup system that's engineered to uh, recover from ran ransomware infection. Ransomware essentially is malware that encrypts your data and then pops a message up there with a countdown timer that says you, ha you have X amount of time to pay money in order to get the decryption key so that you can gain access to your data. Uh, that's what ransomware is. The best approach is to have your backup solution engineered in such a way to, to, to recover from that so that it's not infected with ransomware. You can just then restore your data on top of the encrypted data. Well, certainly clean the malware off first, and then you're good to go. That's the best way to, to, to deal with that. Uh, there's other th things that you can do to try to stop the installation. Uh, certainly training. Crypto Prevent is a, a piece of software that attempts to stop these infections. You can do manual editing of the registry to, to block certain executables from running in certain areas. That'll help limit your, your exposure to ransomware. But the, the variant that you were talking about that's pretty uh, recent now, it's, it's, and it's nasty stuff. When your machine gets infected, it scans your machine for vulnerabilities. And it's not just vulnerabilities in your operating system, but it's also in any third-party applications that you might use, like Acrobat or Flash or something like that. that so once it's, if they find a vulnerability that's not patched, it installs a, a program that steals all of the passwords off your hard drive first, sends them off to some other server somewhere, and then it encrypts your data, taking your login credentials potentially off your user ID and password, and then encrypted the information. So it's sort of a double whammy. Um, that's, that's the latest and greatest of, of what these, these bad guys are coming out with. Well, John, I was dealing with a firm. I thought you had to click on an email attachment, but one firm managed to get infected with the uh, ransomware by a drive-by at a website. So I thought that was another scary development. Oh, yep. yeah. <laughs> that, that's been around for a while. They're, they're always thinking of something. Well, speaking of security, let's go kind of to the base level of security. Are passwords dead? And how will the future involve biometrics and multi-factor authentication? And how fast is all that going to happen? Well, I, I don't think passwords are dead. I mean, you, you read a lot about that where people say that's, that's the thing of the past. I think you're always going to have passwords. I think where we're actually heading, though, is multi-factor authentication. So not just passwords, but also something else whether it's a token, and, and you, Jim, I'm sure you're probably familiar with multi-factor. You can turn on Gmail as an example, or a lot of different products now. When the factor, when the, uh, something you have, the RSA tokens as an example, are also multi-factor. I don't think biometrics are, are, are long, the fingerprints and all that stuff uh, are long for the world. Because if, if a biometric, biometrics really is, a, is an electronic representation of something. So an electronic representation of your iris scan, of your fingerprint or something. If that gets compromised, you're screwed because you're not going to have a new finger put on. You're not going to have a transplant of an eyeball. Uh, at least with uh, tokens and those kinds of things, those things can be changed. And I think that's where, where it's going to happen. So how fast will it happen? We're already seeing multi-factor and more and more applications and companies going that direction. Uh, we're seeing biometrics as well, um, you know, being built into like Windows 10 as an example of facial recognition and those types of things. But uh, I, I believe the future for us is really going to be multi-factor. 
And and let me just add, John, too, that for those who say, what about two-factor authentication? That's a subset of multi-factor authentication. So if you were confused by that. Jim and I talked a little bit about what questions to ask you, but I'm sure we forgot something important that listeners might want to know. What can you think of, John, that we've forgotten? Well, two things, I think. Number one, anytime you have an opportunity to change any defaults, whether it's on a wireless or whether it's on your firewall or any of that stuff, change those default values because those default values are known and you can easily search on the internet to find out what those are. The second thing I think is, and Sharon, you know this, is the number one reason that people get compromised is they're not applying updates. They're not patching their operating systems or they're not patching their, um, their applications. That ransomware variant that I mentioned before, if you, if you patch the application, you wouldn't have that vulnerability for this whole process to start where they would steal the passwords off your machine. Make sure you're always patching, you're always up to date, and not using unsupported you know, software like Windows XP, as an example. Well, John, we really want to thank you, and, and most especially because John was our guest today because our intended speaker uh, had a sudden business commitment come up. Uh, and so what do we do? We, we, we reach for John, um, who fortunately for us can speak on any one of 100 subjects. So, so when we get stuck, uh, he always carries the water for us. And uh, I, I'll, I'll see that I have a proper single malt scotch waiting for you tonight at home, John. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing your expertise on this. It's always terrific. Well, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That does it for this edition of the Digital Edge Lawyers and Technology. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye, Miss Sharon. Happy trails, cowboy. Thanks for listening to the Digital Edge, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join Sharon Nelson and Jim Calloway for their next podcast covering the latest topic related to lawyers and technology. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.